Well, good morning, everyone. Thank you for being here. This is lesson number six. I don't know whether your lesson there says number six. I'm not sure if it says any lesson number at all. Okay, this is lesson number six. And we're continuing to talk about this great understanding of what God has done, has begun, and continues to do, and will always continue to do throughout eternity. Here we have a God. And let's not miss this point because this is the fundamental point. Here we have a God who is categorically, absolutely, eternally, infinitely unique among the gods of the earth because the gods of the earth are the creations of the fallen mentality of men. And here we have a God who for eternity, without beginning, without beginning, they say, what, what, what happened before the Big Bang? I don't know, but there was a God here before the Big Bang. Always having been here, always will be here. Amen? Amen. And in himself, he exists as a community of three distinct divine persons in a fellowship of love through roles. We have to remember who this God is. This is absolutely and without any debate the distinguishing unique revelation about God. This is where his glory is is contained, and this is what his glory is all about. Who he is intrinsically in himself and how he relates as a community within himself, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is where the essence of the glory of God resides and this is what the glory of God is and this is that glory which God is displaying through his people having created us in his image so that upon the earth through a humanity the very essence as much as can be displayed through finite people the very essence of the identity and the reality and the community of who God is can be seen through us. It's an incredible revelation. And it begins in Genesis 1.1. And God said, I'm sorry, and in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Knowing what he wanted to do to share this community with others, with us having no need to do so, being self-contained, self-satisfied, and having no needs external to himself. No needs. Completely self-sufficient, self-contained, never needing anything, anyone else ever. And yet the greatest act of generosity, the greatest act of grace the greatest act of kindness, 
the greatest act of selflessness to create. To create. And to give of himself to his creation. That's why I believe Genesis 1-1 is the most astounding and breathtaking verse in all the Bible. Because out from that verse flows what it's all about. Amen? So if someone asks you, what is the quintessential revelation of grace? I don't point them to the cross and leave them there. I may talk about the cross, and I have to. But I talk about the cross only because of what Genesis 1-1 says. You see, because the cross of Christ is not an isolated event. It is the culminating event of putting into fullness of reality that which God intended in Genesis 1-1, being described in a purpose statement in Genesis 1-26, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Do you get it? Are we getting this? Are we seeing this? This is what we must see about our Bible. And after the fall, everything then flowing forward. So God has created Adam in his image, and in the and as an image bearer, how is Adam to how is Adam to function as an image bearer? <clears throat> what does he have to do? Well, he has to function in a threefold ministry, threefold office, threefold role. Why these roles? Because in each of these roles, as king as prophet and as priest. In each of these roles, a person of the Trinity is in view. And so Adam has to, as an image bearer, to properly, accurately portray who God is in himself. Adam has to fulfill each of the roles, not individually, but simultaneously. And so in some aspects of what Adam is to do, there is a particular aspect of a role that is more accentuated than the others, but the other two are in there contained. Because there's never a unilateral role, one role by itself. It is a role that contains the other two. And so depending on the activity, the function, the need, one of the roles comes to the surface. But the other two roles are there with that role that comes to the surface, don't you see? And isn't that exactly what we see in the function and the revelation in the ministry of God in this world? This is what we see. And so we've already talked about Adam in these three roles as king, as prophet, as priest. King, go out. And inaugurate my kingdom. As prophet, inaugurate it how? By building it through the word. Remember? Go out and multiply into all the earth. Take this word that's been given to you, this obedience to be given to you, and take that word. And through that word, the kingdom is constructed. It is inaugurated through the authority of a king. It is constructed through the word. And then... In Adam, he is to be maintaining, work, and keep the garden. You remember in Genesis 2.15. And we're going to talk about that in a moment. And so just hopping ahead real quickly, what do we see in Jesus? Jesus comes as the king. And as king, he inaugurates the kingdom of God. Isn't that what we see 
in the gospel of Mark. And Jesus went about what? Preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. And so he inaugurates the kingdom in his kingly authority. And he builds the kingdom through the proclamation of his word, correct? The kingdom is built on the basis of the word of God, king and prophet. And so next week we'll see that Jesus as priest, the kingdom is inaugurated through Jesus' authority as king. It is built upon his royal prophetic role, ministering the word. And then in his priestly role, entrance into the kingdom is made available to us through his priestly role, which we'll see next week. Now, that's different than what we see in Adam because Adam, there was not supposed to be any, if you would, entry because we were not out of it, but Adam, you remember, fell. So let's take a look at this. Father, as we do that, we thank you. We want to thank you. We want to begin by thanking you and acknowledging your presence with us. Father, if you don't speak to us through your spirit, if we don't hear this morning by the Spirit, if we do not feel and understand and receive by your Spirit, this is a dead lesson. So, Father, we ask, give us revelation by the Spirit. Give us anointing to speak, anointing to hear, anointing to understand, anointing to receive, anointing to ingest, anointing to apply, cooperate. Father, do all this work so that your great eternal purpose may be fulfilled as fully as it can in us in these days upon the earth so that on that day your name may be fully glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. So in Genesis 2.15, what does the Lord say? Work and keep the garden. I didn't hear you. I have a question. Yes. When exactly does, does Christ enter into the Trinity? Yes, we'll talk about that. Now, haven't gotten there yet. Okay. Haven't gotten there yet. No, that's okay. That's okay. Haven't gotten there yet. No. Haven't gotten there. It's not that I don't want to answer a question. If I answer a question that where we haven't gotten, then it, it doesn't work. You know? Yeah. It's like giving the answer in calculus at the end of the class when the beginning class we haven't figured out how to say two times two. It, it won't work, but we'll get there. Yeah, Joe, thank you for coming, though. Thank you so much. Everybody knows Joe Fargo? Where you at, Joe? Good to see Joe here. In Genesis 2.15, the Lord says to Adam, work and keep the garden. Now, what is the significance of this? Remember what the garden is. The garden is God's sanctuary on earth. It's not a place where vegetables and greenery and, and flowers are growing, and that's it certainly has all this there. But the garden quintessentially is God's sanctuary. What does that mean? His place of dwelling, his place of being with his people, and not only being with his people, but meeting with his people. You remember we see that in Genesis 3, 6, where the Lord is walking in the cool of the evening where? In the garden. He's down there with Adam and Eve, if you would, in a theophany, in a physical appearance so that's what the garden is. And so Adam, as God's in his priestly function, is to work and keep the garden. And what is the significance of this instruction? It is his responsibility 
to work and keep the garden, Adam was to minister the worship of God and to guard the garden from any pollution or any intrusion from the outside world in the field. You remember in Genesis 1, I'm sorry, Genesis 3, you have the serpent was the most crafty, what? Of all God's animals or creation of the field. And so the serpent is originally not in the garden. He's in the field. And so Adam is given the command to work and keep the garden. We see this in Numbers 3, 7 and 8, the two same words. He is supposed to be ministering the things of God through the worship of God, and he is supposed to be guarding against the profane or the worldly or the sinful or the fallen or the, if you would, in Genesis up to 3, the field. He's supposed to keep all of that out. And as he does that, humanity within the context of the garden if they're going to do what the Lord tells them to do, will begin to become a growing group, descendants, children. And as they do that, they're growing in not only in numbers, but they're growing in the presence of God. The presence of God is growing and expanding in the garden so that in some way, mystery to me, I don't know, the presence of God through his obedient, serving, worshiping people in the garden, the presence of God is being manifested and extended. And so that the garden begins to grow and grow and grow until all the, until one day all the earth becomes the garden. All of that outside, whatever it is in the field, that chaos out there is brought under the control, it is subdued, it is ruled over, it is brought some way into the context of being a place of God's worshipful presence. And so that's the priest's duty. Somebody says, how does the serpent get into the garden? Well, it's very simple. Adam let him in. He should have want the serpent some kind of way could come in. Okay, I don't know how that happened. I wasn't there. I know some of you think I was, but I, it was a day or two later that I got there. So I wasn't there, Butch, on that day. And so he comes in. What should have happened? Adam, by his kingly rule, should have thrown the serpent out. And so the most critical thing is when the serpent begins to talk to Eve, that's not the first problem. The first bending of the knee the first bowing that came to a breaking, he bowed, therefore he broke, right? The first bowing came with a little bend, and the bend was the serpent was there with them. He should never have been there with them. When sin begins to come down the hallway of your house, you should immediately get it out of your house. It doesn't supposed to be there. It is an alien. It's from the field. It's from the outside. It is contrary to the image of God. It is there to pollute the image of God. And what we're to do as God's priests, we are to throw those things out of our minds, amen, and out of our activities. Can you say amen? Yes. We're not to be entertaining them because when we do, the same kind of thing happens in our lives in a spiritual way that happened in Genesis chapter 3. We begin to experience spiritual fallenness. It's not even in the notes. Uh, I'm hoping to get through this part today. So you see this same phrase is in Numbers 3, 7, and 8. You'll see that. It has to do with the Levitical activity of ministering 
the worship of God in the temple or the tabernacle and of cleansing and guarding and keeping the tabernacle or the temple clean of outside, profane, non-God, worldly pollution, amen, of sin. That's what that's all about. Therefore, in the garden, God fulfilled his twin purposes. He had two purposes as Adam fulfilled his responsibility. As Adam did that, God's presence dwelt with man and the garden not only became the presence of God's dwelling, a place where he lived, his tabernacling among men, it also became the place where God met with men. It was a dwelling that was developed into a meeting place. So it was a dwelling meeting place or meeting dwelling place. Both came together. But the two issues, first, a dwelling that became the context for the meeting or the communing with God, the fellowshipping with God. Do you see that? That's what the garden was all about. It must be kept that way and understand because a tabernacle is to have the same purpose, the same purpose. And so years later, the Lord, remember, delivered his people out of Egypt. Do you remember some of the sermons out of uh, Exodus? And he brought them to Sinai. Why? Why? To make them his personal people. My people, let my people go. These are my people. Let them go into the wilderness that they may offer to me sacrifices, that they may worship me. This is my people. He says, you have my son in captivity, Pharaoh, and if uh, I'm going to kill your son because you're trying to kill my son. You remember that? And so the 10th plague. And so Exodus 3.10, come. The Lord is telling, Yahweh is telling Moses on the mountain, come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people my people. Now, these people are God's people before they ever even know about God very much. Do you know that? Do you see that? This is a predestined activity. Oh, we don't like predestination, some folks. I don't like predestination. Israel was saved because of God's predestinating activity. It is God who decides who his people are. It is God who delivers them. It is God who brings them to the mountain. It is God who gives them the commandments. It is God who dwells with them. Thank God for his predestinating eternal purposes. Amen? I'm so glad it doesn't depend upon our initiation first. In the pagan religions, it is the people or the priests of the pagans who give God a sacrifice in Israel, it is God who gives his people the sacrifice. It is the opposite. It is not we who approach God to be saved. It is God who comes to us and saves us, to which we respond by faith. Amen? Amen. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. God has come to us in grace and has said to us, I will save you. I am saving you. Ezekiel 36, you see that. And then we say yes to that is our response by faith. Amen? That's what's going on here. Therefore, you see in Sinai at Mount Horeb, H-O-R-E-B, it's the mountain of God, Horeb, Sinai. It's not, the Sinai is the, <clears throat> the mountain range. Horeb is the mountain itself. At Mount Horeb, Yahweh, Yahweh, remember the name of God that God gives to um, Moses in Exodus chapter 3. We already see that word, Yahweh, that name first used in Genesis 2-4. It is the personal, uh, covenantial, personal, relational, communing name of God. 
in relation to us. And so Yahweh created his people at Sinai into his nation, remember, through his word. Why? Why does he do that? So he can dwell among them. Why does he bring them to Sinai and give them this word? Why? Why? So he can begin to fulfill his creative purpose in this people. As he wanted to do this in Adam and Adam's progeny, now he's going to begin to do it through the mediation and, and uh, the roles that Moses plays in his people. So why does he do this? He creates them for, as his people. Look, listen to the verse, Exodus 25, 8, 9. And let them make me a sanctuary. Why? That I may dwell in their midst. That I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle on all its furniture. So you will make it. We went through this. And so why does God create Israel? For the same reason he creates man in Genesis so that he can dwell with them. And so what is the picture of the tabernacle? <clears throat> it becomes a picture of Eden. We went through this, remember? It becomes a picture of Eden. It is a type of God taking them back to his original intention. Not something new and unusual. It is the ever-flowing work of God continuing down through the ages to bring about in fullness in his people, what he intended and started in Genesis. So we have the tabernacle here. And so the tabernacle was created to be first a dwelling place. Amen? A dwelling. And so you remember the chapters in Exodus, chapters 25 to 30, instructions, 30, I think it's 33 or 34 to 40, the construction. I may miss one of those chapters a little bit. And so that's what we get the rest of Genesis. You have that intervening thing with the golden calf. That's kind of an intervening thing. And so when the tabernacle is completed, remember, it's for a dwelling place that I may dwell. Why dwell? Where did God first dwell? He dwelt in the garden. He was with them in the garden. So the tabernacle becomes a type of the garden. And so when it's completed, we see in Exodus chapter 40, we see this. And the glory of God came down from Mount Sinai. The glory of God dwelt on Mount Sinai, remember? And it came down and into the tabernacle, the glory of God left the mountain before its completion in Exodus 40. <clears throat> the glory of God was always on Mount Sinai. Moses was called into the presence of God. There are seven different callings into the presence of God to do this, to receive that, to talk about that. You remember that. Then once the tabernacle is completed, the glory of God leaves Mount Sinai and comes down into the temple. And the glory of God fills the temple. So listen to Exodus chapter uh, 40, verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the temple, uh, uh, the tabernacle. So what has happened? The tabernacle is constructed, remember, for two purposes here. It is to be a dwelling and why a dwelling? So that God may meet with his people. Meeting means what? Communing fellowship. Not just to sit around and have a meeting. Okay, I call the meeting to order. It is a meeting of God and his people in the most intimate way of all that God can meet with us and that we can meet with him in a communing personal fellowship of love. That's what God is doing. 
That's what he wanted in Genesis. That's what he had in Genesis until Adam disobeyed. And now that's what he begins to recreate in the tabernacle. Therefore, the tabernacle becomes the means on earth in that period of time, and then goes into the temple later. You remember, under the construction of Solomon, it becomes the place of God's presence dwelling with his people meeting with his people in communion and fellowship. Do we get that? So two things, dwelling and meeting. But what about this verse? Now the temple is complete. The tabernacle, if I say temple, you understand I mean tabernacle. The tabernacle is completed in verse 40. I mean, uh, verse 40, verse 34. The glory comes down. Now, what has Moses been doing before this? He's been going up into the presence of God regularly, into the very presence of the glory of God. Amen? Amen. Do you remember this? He went up there, the Ten Commandments, he went up there. Okay, fine. So he's been going up there. But now, all of a sudden, once the glory of of God is upon the earth in the tabernacle, what does verse 35 say? Moses can't go in. Moses can't go in. Listen to it. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the clouds settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the temple of the tabernacle. So you see, Exodus closes with Yahweh dwelling among his people. But the question of how his people, even Moses, how his people can enter his presence for fellowship and communion must wait until Leviticus. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Moses himself, verse 35, you see 40, 35 there? He was what? Not able to enter. Why? Because now God has allowed Moses and has brought Moses into his presence in order to fulfill God's purpose. And so Moses has the ability through the allowance and sovereign will of God to enter his presence only for the purpose of completing God's purpose, if you would, in the tabernacle. And once God's purpose is completed, the tabernacle is completed by chapter 40 in Exodus. Once it's completed, the glory of God then leaves Sinai or leaves Horeb and dwells in this tabernacle. Now, not even Moses can enter. Why? Because God is going to now give the way to man of how to enter his presence. How can we become a communing fellowship? How can we have a tent of meeting with God in his place of dwelling? Do we see that? Do we, you have to make the distinction. If you don't get the distinction, you're going to miss something of the incarnational purpose and ministry of Jesus. First, a dwelling among us in order to do whatever was necessary to bring us into his presence as a tent of meeting. Do we see that? Okay, now, you see, so therefore in Leviticus, especially in chapters 1 through 16, specifically 1 to 8 and then chapter 16, the theology of how the tabernacle became the tent of meeting is revealed. Leviticus, especially these chapters, the, those chapters in, indicate, show, reveal to us how can sinful fallen man, even Moses, Gordon, how can we enter into the very presence of God's glory and enjoy the benefits of the tent of meeting? It's answered 
in these chapters in Leviticus. Now, don't be worried. We're not going to do an extended study of Leviticus. No, maybe we need to do that, and that might be for the future. It is an incredible revelation. This means what? That Leviticus, you see, is a part of the seamless flow of the Pentateuch. What is the Pentateuch? First five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's the Pentateuch. Penta means what? Five. Remember, Pentagon, Penta. It means five. So what is a Pentateuch when you hear the word Pentateuch or read it? Oh, those are the first five books of Moses. Okay? So Leviticus is part of a seamless flow as Genesis flows into Exodus, as Exodus flows into Leviticus, as Leviticus flows into Numbers, as Numbers flows into and then as the whole issue and revelation of what God has done in the Pentateuch then flows into Joshua and on until the Gospels all the way to Revelation 21, 22 with a new heaven and a new earth. Don't you see? Don't you see it? Are you seeing it? The comprehensive seamlessness of the Word of God. You see, this means that the entire history and all the instructions about the law and the sacrifices and the rites in the Pentateuch, all of that, are a comprehensive theology of God making and keeping his promise to be with his people as their God in fellowship and in communion. I think I can finish this. From the mountain to the tabernacle. God comes down from Sinai. No longer will God dwell in Sinai. He will dwell among his people in the place of tabernacle or temple. Now that the temple was finished, the glory of God dwelt among his people for the first time so that he spoke to them from the tabernacle rather than from Sinai. So how do we know this? What does Leviticus 1.1 say? All of a sudden, God is speaking to Moses from before that. Where has he been speaking? From the mountain. <coughs> Moses, come up. Moses, come up. Moses, come up. But now, what does Leviticus 1.1 say? Now that the glory has filled the tabernacle, Leviticus 1.1 tells you this. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. From the tent of meeting. He's no longer in a mountain on a hillside. He's no longer in a building. He's no longer in paintings, in statues. He's no longer there. He's now in the tent of meeting. And today, God, it resides in his earthly tent of meeting. Where's that? The church. The church. We are now the tent of meeting. But that's jumping ahead, isn't it? You see, entrance into the tabernacle was barred. It was barred until, even to Moses, until a doorway. Now, did you see what I just did? I put door and way. Door and way. Somebody said, I am the door, and somebody said, I am the way. Somebody said that somewhere. Until the doorway of entrance was made possible. Leviticus will tell us how 
entrance into the presence of God to be with him in his tent of meeting is made possible even to Moses. If Moses can't go in, brothers and sisters, nobody goes in. If any man could go in on the basis of his own something, Moses could have done it, and not even Moses can do it. And so this is a subject, you see, at least the first eight chapters of Leviticus, and it crescendos. You know what a crescendo is? It comes to its height. The height, the mountain peak of the Pentateuch. Remember what the Pentateuch is? The five books. The mountain peak of the Pentateuch is Leviticus 16. Everything is now rushing one through seven instructions chapter 8 priesthood and then going on up to the actual activity of applying the means of entrance into the, uh, into the presence of God. You see Leviticus describes how God's people can enter God's house as the tent of meeting through how the shedding of the blood officiated by the priest. Why? Because in these chapters is designated all of the sacrificial system. In the first chapters are given what? Didn't I have it in here? Yeah. In the first seven chapters are given what? The description, the revelation of the sacrifices. The five offerings, the five sacrifices, the various rites. All of that is in the first seven chapters. Then chapter 8 is the consecration of the priest. And so with the combination of the shedding of blood and the person who was anointed by God, only one man, to shed the blood on behalf of the people so that God's people can enter into his holy presence, we see that in these eight chapters. So how do they do it? How can we enter in? Only through the shedding of blood as administered by the high priest. We must make sure it's not just by the shedding of blood. It is not just by the shedding of blood. It is not just by a priest. It is by the shedding of blood through the administration of God's priest. Do we see that? I know as Christians we say, well, the shed blood of Jesus, whatever, and, and hopefully we understand that. But we must understand how these two are connected together and the inseparability of these two if we're going to have an opportunity to dwell in the presence of God as his tent of meeting. The divine goal in these chapters in Leviticus is the realization of God's eternal purpose of having a people with whom he can enjoy eternal fellowship and communion. That's what these chapters are about. That's what Leviticus is all about. Leviticus is how my people can come into my presence and what that presence and meeting looks like. That's what Leviticus is all about. It's not a strange, weird book. It is absolutely the central, the focal, what do you call it? The fulcrum, if you would, of the entire Pentateuch. We go to Leviticus to become people, God's people, and we leave Leviticus as God's people. Leviticus shows us how to enter in, and then Leviticus shows us how to continue as God's people in his presence. Leviticus is something else. So let's look at, in just for a moment, and we'll close with this, Leviticus fulfilled. In the incarnation, you remember what the word incarnation means? It means the Son of God took on the humanity of Jesus. The enfleshment, God 
the Son became embodied. You remember he took on the uh, humanity of Jesus, okay? So in this man Jesus, we have the nature of uh, the man and we have the nature of the Son of God together in one man. In the incarnation, both God's purposes of dwelling with his people, the dwelling of God's glory, and the entrance into the glory in order to meet with God, both of these purposes, the presence of God's glory dwelling and the purpose of God's glory meeting or communing is fulfilled in the one person ministry of the Lord Jesus. Hmm. Where do we see the dwelling? What happened? John 1, 14. And we beheld, now listen to these words. And remember what we just talked about. <clears throat> and we beheld his glory. The presence of God's glory in the tabernacle is dwelling. And we beheld his glory. That glory as of the only begotten of the Father full of grace and truth. So in the incarnation, the very glory of God's presence is now among his people in this man called Jesus. You begin to see, he says, we beheld, and there that glory dwelt among us. What does it mean? Tabernacled. It's the same word. And so here we have now the living tabernacle, the fulfillment of the type of the Old Testament, which was a type. Now we see it being fulfilled in humanity. For the first time, God's full, perfect, exact image, Hebrews 1.3, is now manifested in a man so that the glory of God now resides in a man, thus fulfilling Genesis 1.26. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Now God's purpose is being fulfilled in this one man. But you remember it said, let's have many. Go out and what? Multiply. So not this one man only, but this one man who will produce a whole lot of progeny or descendants. The ability to enter into the glory of God is made possible as Jesus in his role as prophet becomes the lamb who will take away the sin of the world at the cross. And so in, in the cross event is captured and fulfilled all that Leviticus 1 to 16 talks about. In order to come into my presence, in order to experience my glory in a fellowshipping, communing way, because if you come into the glory without that, you're going to be fried. Leviticus chapter 10 tells you, you know, and the Lord destroyed Nadab and Abihu because they came into his presence without the proper way. And so how does that happen? We see it at the cross. So Jesus says this. Remember, Jesus' death on the cross makes way. So in Jesus, John 10, 1 through 2. Truly I say to you, he who does not enter by the sheepfold, but by the door. Sorry. He who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in another way. That man is a thief or a robber. Anyone who's trying to get into heaven except through Christ is a thief or a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. There is one way in. It must be the way that is prescribed in these chapters in Leviticus. It has to be that. Why? Because God laid down the way in the Old Testament, in Leviticus, and Jesus must, in his person and in his ministry, fulfill that way in order to be the real Messiah who's 
through whose entrance, um, through whose person in death and resurrection we can enter heaven. You see, in this way, all of the requirements of Leviticus, Leviticus of entering the tabernacle are fulfilled and are fulfilled by God himself. God himself fulfills all of the requirements. He doesn't call us to do it. As a result, the tent of meeting is now forever open to God's people. Why? Why? Why is it forever open? I'm jumping ahead, I know. Because there was a priest on earth who opened the way into his presence, and now there is a priest in heaven who keeps that presence open. Amen? Amen. Hebrews 7, 25, ever make the intercession for us? I think it's Hebrews 7, 25. There was a priest on earth who opened it, and there remains a priest on earth who keeps it open. Amen? Amen. Therefore, the incarnation needs to be seen as accomplishing the twin functions of the tabernacle where the glory of God dwells and where the people meet with God in communion and fellowship. That's the background, just a little bit of background that I felt the Lord give for us to next week go into talk about the priestly role of Jesus. Thank you.